This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Over and over, one finds the stories written that for someone who wants to break free inside of the forces of ignorance, of delusion, of habit, of sleepwalking, that you must really see that uh, there's something greater than just getting through each day. And devote yourself in some fashion to it. Doesn't mean sitting up without sleeping particularly, or not taking the medicine your doctor gives you unless you have very bad karma. But finding something in yourself that, finding a place in your being, in your heart, that really wants to understand what life and death is about, or that wants to live in a different way. And letting that be the source of your inspiration, that be the source of your guidance. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. Heyo, blessings Heart Wisdom fam. We're back with another fine episode of the podcast, number 188. This is once again Ganesh Braymiller, Jack's media manager, content specialist, and maca sipping elephant, here to welcome you into a special story time episode with Jack. In this really unique session beaming in from Spirit Rock in March 1986, Jack tells two transformational ancient Buddhist Dharma stories. The first is the Leela of an enlightened blind monk and a doctor, and the next focuses on Buddha's past life as a lion living on an island with an elephant friend. As with all story-focused teachings, you can feel free to take them as truth, but another useful scope is to see them through the lens of myth. Rather than focusing on the reality of these Dharma-steep tales, I invite you to have them wash over the soil of your being like a soft spring rain, allowing your roots to soak up whatever tidbits will help you along your path. Having your own intuition be the filter for what works and what doesn't. And either way, this is a truly fun episode just to sit back, relax, and allow your imagination to color in Jack's captivating and magical stories. I got a quote for y'all. So, in this episode, Jack is stated saying, For someone who wants to break free inside of the forces of ignorance, delusion, habit, and sleepwalking, you must really see that there's something greater than just getting through each day. 
and devote yourself to it in some fashion. Find a place in yourself, in your being, your heart, that really wants to understand what life and death is about, that wants to live in a different way. Let that be the source of your inspiration, the source of your guidance. So based around those quotes, I want to ask you, the listener, as I ask myself, what is your source of inspiration? What is your unique fuel to freedom? It's so easy to fall into our daily habits and get locked into the daily grind, these personal cycles of samsara, which truly entrap us. And since these are truly entrenching cycles, we need reminders to wake us up. Why do you think Ram Dass's namesake book of this network, Be Here Now, has the word remember written around every edge of the cover? My take is because this is a game of hide and seek with presence, with guru, with loving awareness, whatever you want to call it. So amidst this cyclical whirlpool of habit that we find ourselves in, allow these stories to be the siren song of mindful remembrance. But before sparking this story time, let's dive into some events. If you want to connect with Jack, this is the way. June 3rd, open the book of your life to the awakened heart, an invitation to love, presented by Spirit Rock and featuring meditation stories and dialogue on illuminating your own inner gifts of love, gratitude, forgiveness, and the heart. On June 12th, turn the page to the Power of Awareness online course. This time around, Jack and Tara, along with two celebrated senior teachers, Devin Berry and Conda Mason, have evolved the deeply regarded course to offer new training with a deepened commitment to engaged spiritual practice, equity, and cultural sensitivity. This is an opportunity you do not want to skip the page on. As always, a great part of the ongoing Modern Dharma story is Tara and Jack's brainchild for finding digital spiritual community, Cloud Sangha, who just opened two new Jack Cornfield focus groups, Loving Kindness and Buddhist Wisdom. Find your digital spiritual community at cloudsangha.co slash jackcornfield. And finally, open a new chapter in your life with Jack's amazing array of online courses and classes, as well as other exceptional offerings like Dharma Talks, meditations, and articles over on the new jackcornfield.com. So, our wisdom fam, there it is. Let's jump into some ancient Buddhist Dharma stories retold from modern times by the luminous Jack Cornfield. This is once again Ganesh Braymiller sending you a love that I truly hope permeates every aspect of your existence. Namaste. Tonight being the, the last day of the month, I thought to, do, to take some time for questions and kind of open topics. But before that, I wanted to tell two stories, or maybe three, we'll see in time. Uh, which, rather than being my own personal stories, as last week, are quite traditional stories from ancient Buddhist time, and actually probably from before, even though they're Buddhist stories, uh, they may date back prior to that, to the whole oral ancient uh, Vedic and uh, uh, Brahmanical tradition of India. And both of them speak in some way about the courage and the mystery of the heart in in a different way each one speaks. The first story I tell because we were studying it in a small study group that I lead for, for new Vipassana teachers concerns a man who was born in India during the time of the Buddha and whose parents later died 
And this man lived in a relatively prosperous situation, was fulfilled in those ways, had a nice house and nice circumstances. But after the death of his parents, found that life was not quite the same as it had been before for him. And he got touched by their death in a way that made him want to understand the mystery of life, the mystery of life and death, and not just to go on being a prosperous merchant or whatever his particular occupation was. He'd heard the Buddha teach, and so he went to the forest and he asked permission to ordain, and he left behind his, his wealth to other member of his family, his brother. He took a teacher for the appropriate first five years to learn how to be a monk and to live properly. And then he went to the Buddha again and he said, all right, I've got, I understand how to live as a monk. I live simply. My virtue and my way of life is, is uh, well established. Now give me a meditation practice that will lead me to enlightenment, where I'll really be freed. And so the Buddha gave him a meditation practice, not very different from what we've been doing here, working with the breath and the sensations of the body and mind, and really paying attention in a way that we can see how we get caught and trapped by them, and how we can be liberated from one moment to another in little things and in very deep things. So he went off to a forest uh, to practice near a village where he could go for his alms food. And he resolved to himself, I'm really going to do it. I have nothing else in my life that matters at this point. I've given away all my things. I've ordained. If I can't do this fully, what did I come here for? So for the rains retreat, for the three months that he was to practice, he resolved not to... Uh, lie down. He was just going to sit and walk, and even if he slept, he would sleep sitting up. Uh, an austerity that's not generally recommended for people, I you. <laughs> but in any case, that was his kind of courage and resolve. So he did, and as he did so, his eyes got dust in them as he walked in, the, in, in out of the village, and they started to tear. And there was one village doctor who noticed it and said, let me help you. Here is some ointment that you can put on some drops. But in order to put them on, you have to lie down. <laughs> well, he went through a little bit of struggle with the doctor, and he wouldn't say anything about sitting up because he was trying to be modest about it all. And he took the medicine, but his eyes weren't getting any better. And the doctor said, do you put the medicine in? And he said, yes. And the doctor said, well, do you lie down for the half an hour? And the monk was silent, and the doctor knew that he wasn't doing that. And he said, well, then please don't tell anyone that I've treated you, <laughs> because it's, it's, you're not following my prescription, and it's not getting better. So the monk bowed, and he went back. And he sat there, and he said, what's more important to me, my eyesight or, my, or the, the realization of enlightenment? And in this, you know how those old stories go. He said, what really matters is re liberation, is realization. I don't care what the doctor says. I'm just going to sit here. So he did day and night he practiced. And as in all good old stories, at the end of the three months, he was enlightened. However, also at that time, through not taking the medicine properly, he lost his eyesight. And he became blind. 
And eventually, through a whole series of events, he found his way, he was guided back to the uh, monastery of the Buddha, and was given a cottage as an elder and an, an enlightened teacher. And he would go out on his walking meditation, and because he couldn't see in a little hut, and people would bring him food, and he had a little walking path, He would sometimes step on the insects, on the little ants and things that were crawling on the ground. And people came up to the Buddha, lay followers, and they said, what kind of enlightenment is this? This man is supposed to be enlightened and his heart is supposed to be open and pure. And yet we see him walking back and forth killing these insects. You can't kill if you're enlightened. And then the Buddhist explained, he said that He told the lay people that the man was blind. And in being blind, when he went out for a walk, even though he accidentally killed the little insects, he didn't do so out of volition. He didn't do it on purpose. It was an accident. And therefore, uh, it was not based on any aversion or any uh, unskillful states in his heart. The Buddha told this story, this is the first part of it, as a way to begin to illustrate the law of karma and the power of our heart, of our volition, in creating uh, events for us. So someone said, someone raised their hand after the Buddha said, well, he's enlightened, but he's blind, and since it's not his volition that makes uh, him kill the uh, insects, he's not really doing any conscious harm to beings. Someone raised their hand and they said, well, how is it that this guy ended up becoming enlightened and blind at the same time? It's a very strange thing to happen. Why did it happen to this man? And so the Buddha continued with the story. And he said, a long time ago in the city of Benares, many lifetimes ago, there was a young woman who was born into a rather poor family And as she grew up, married, had two children, her eyesight began to deteriorate. And finally it started to get quite bad, and she went to a well-known, prosperous doctor in Benares. And she said, please, I have very little money, but my eyesight is going bad. I have two children. Please, can you heal me? If you do so, if you can cure me, I will become your servant, I will be your slave, I will do anything for you, and I will also uh, offer the labor and assistance of my children to you for this. So the doctor received her, and he gave her, he mixed up the right kind of roots and herbs and medicine, and gave it to her. And she took it home, and she put it in her eyes, and in fact, it began to cure her. She got better and better each day she used the medicine. And finally, after due time, ten days later, uh, the doctor had asked her to come back, and she returned. She was going back to the doctor, and she said, if he finds out that he cured me, then I'll have to become his servant or his slave and do everything that he wants for me. And I'm sorry I made that fool promise. So I'll, I'll do something else. And she went in, and he said, how are your eyes? And she said, oh, since I put the ointment on, they've been worse, and they sting, and they hurt, and they burn, and I don't know, 
I don't know what to do. I'm just going to go blind and I, I, I just can't help it. And I, I'll just go home and I won't be coming back. And the doctor looked into her eyes and looked at her and realized that she was lying. That in fact, her eyes were healed and that she could see better than ever and knew that she just didn't want to keep her promise. And he was quite upset with her. And he laid, she went home and he said, well, I'll make up a new medicine for you. And he went home and he stewed about it and he got more and more angry. And finally he said, if she thinks that my medicine, she's going to tell people that my medicine made her eyes worse, then I'll show her. And he went to his pharmacy and he mixed up a different potion for her eyes. And he went to her house and he found her and he said, here, this is for your eyes. Maybe this will make them better. And she put them in her eyes and she was blinded. It's kind of like a Greek myth, this story, a very powerful kind of tragedy to it. And then the Buddha said, as illustrating, he said, and so perhaps you can understand if you realize that this monk who was blinded in the course of his becoming enlightenment, enlightened and was unable to receive the medicine from the doctor, even though the doctor was there and said, here, only you have to take this medicine and you will be healed. Somehow in his karma, the fruit of the action that he performed in that lifetime ago, out of his anger and his resentment, giving this woman medicine that caused her blindness, has come to fruition in this lifetime. And so he was unable in his heart to receive medicine from a doctor. And therefore, even though he practiced sincerely and became enlightened, he also lost his eyesight. There are a few important points to note about the story before I go on to the next story. The first of them is that it gives you a sense, which one finds over and over in the ancient traditions, of the compelling nature of spiritual practice for people who really want to develop or for people who really want to understand. Over and over one finds the stories written that for someone who wants to break free inside of the forces of ignorance, of delusion, of habit, of sleepwalking, that you must really see that uh, there's something greater than just getting through each day. And devote yourself in some fashion to it. doesn't mean sitting up without sleeping, particularly, or not taking the medicine your doctor gives you unless you have very bad karma. But finding something in yourself that, finding a place in your being, in your heart, that really wants to understand what life and death is about, or that wants to live in a different way. And letting that be the source of your inspiration, that be the source of your guidance. A second and very important illustration from this story about the old blind monk 
is that karma, and actually it's two words in Sanskrit, karma vipaka. Karma means action and vipaka means result. Karma is based on volition, or to put it more simply and more importantly, karma is based on the heart. It's not so important what you do. What is important is what is your intention, what is the state of your mind and the state of your heart that leads you to that action. And people ask, I remember when the Dalai Lama came and visited, there are all these complicated questions about karma. Suppose that there was someone there who was, had a rifle and was killing a lot of people and you had an opportunity to save many lives, but you had to kill this person in order to do it. Would that be bad karma? You know, or all these kind of complicated questions. And the answer is really pretty straightforward. It is, what is in your heart at the time that you act? Is there compassion? Is there caring? Is there some sense in your heart of being helpful to another person? Then, even if you're doing something kind of screwy, if that's your genuine mind state, the karma that you will make out of that, the result that will come, there may be some, some other kinds of results as well, but the fundamental result will come based on the goodness of that action. That will be the, the end result for you. If, on the other hand, even if you're acting in a way that seems rather proper and straightforward, if you do it in a way that is underneath, based on a volition of jealousy or, or selfishness, or revenge, or the kind of things illustrated in that story, then somehow that will bear fruit in your life now or in the future. It's a very important law to talk about, an important lesson to share to you. It doesn't tell you how to live. That is your choice. But what it tells you is more than anything else what creates your life in the future and the world that we live in is the human heart. And so this illustrates the very first verse in the Dhammapada, the very first verse in the most famous collection of Buddhist teachings, which says that the world and all that we live in is created by mind, by... by uh, by our actions and our deeds, all based on mind and heart. The word is, is hard to translate because it means both mind and heart. And if someone acts with goodness, then beautiful events will follow them, just as the wheel of the cart follows the ox that draws it. And similarly, if someone acts out of spite or revenge or a motivation that is harmful. So sorrow will follow them just as the wheel of the cart follows the ox which draws it. It's a very simple and very powerful law. And if we can understand this one law and really pay attention to it in our lives, it can mean a great deal to our our closest relationships to our family, to our loved ones, and to the whole society around us. Second story. Old, these are all Buddhist stories tonight, as I said. Uh, 
These are from the Jataka, Jataka tales, which are the stories about the future, the past lives of the Buddha before he became a Buddha. Whether you believe in past and future lives is quite irrelevant. I didn't believe in them very much at all for a lot of years when I practiced, including uh, much of the time I was a monk. I thought that they were really mythological, that they talk more about the, the lives that we're born into even within one life. Because if you've noticed, between being a teenager or going to college or being married or being divorced or being at work or being in a raging, angry mood one week and in a very loving and compassionate mood another, that we live a lot of lives and that we're born in hell or heaven or all the places in between over and over again in our life. So you can take them how you like, whether they're true or not. You'll find out when you die. <laughs> You'll be surprised. <laughs> Once long ago, the Buddha was born as a fearless and powerful lion. He lived on an island, and there he freely roamed the jungles of this large island, and with his teeth and claws took whatever prey he chose, as was appropriate for a lion. This lion had one close friend, a great bull elephant. These two powerful animals often got together to talk. Sometimes they traveled together exploring the caves and the mountains, and they respected one another. Though the lion was a hunter, and the tusked elephant fed only on grasses and fruits, they got along well. The lion's snarling, coughing roar and the elephant's bold trumpeting both sounded the same note of fearlessness. One day the lion and the elephant were walking at the jungle's edge, not far from the seashore. The lion lifted his heavy golden head, sniffed the salty air, listening to the gulls and the breakers, and suddenly he heard desperate cries, the terror-stricken screams of men who are facing a violent death. With a roar, the lion leapt forward, his heart racing fiercely, and called for his friend the elephant to follow. They raced on the sandy beach, kicking up clouds of sand, elephant racing along behind, listening to the agonizing cries. And they reached the final ridge overlooking the breakers, and there below them was a group of shipwrecked seamen running frantically like herded sheep. Behind them was a monstrous sea serpent, which had come out of the sea and dashed their ship. It had big scales and green eyes and fangs. And the lion and the elephant looked at each other, and they cried with one voice, let us help them. The lion leaped on the elephant's back, and steadying himself with his claws, he lashed his tail and roared, and the elephant trumpeted mightily, and they went into battle. The servant looked up, and with a long hiss, released the merchants. Its head rose in the air, and it coiled out of the, out of the sea and struck toward the elephant and the lion. There was a long, terrible battle, roaring and hissing, the serpent and the elephant trumpeting, and all of the seamen ran into the jungle and threw themselves down on the ground, covering their ear, ears with their hands, as if the world were coming to an end. Great shouts, clouds of blinding sand were thrown into the sky and screeches. It took several hours. All of a sudden, the sounds of the battle ceased and the air cleared. Only the ocean rolled in again, and the merchants and the seamen on the ship peeked out from the jungle fearfully. There on the beach lay the body of the serpent, crushed and bloody. It was torn and dead. 
There, too, nearby lay the two fearless friends, the great lion and the mighty elephant, alive but dying. The serpent's venom had done its deadly work. So the merchants went down and they built a great pyre on the beach. And on it, with all honors, they placed the body of the lion and the elephant. They did the prayers. They say they did the traditional pujas. And then they wondered as they prayed and thanked these animals why it was that those two animals came to save them. They wondered why did two such powerful beasts give up their own lives for us. This is a story that was told by the Buddha to his monks. And still today we wonder, he said, for even if one spoke for a thousand years with a thousand mouths, or if one wrote in a thousand books with a thousand hands, one could still never begin to explain or exhaust the mystery of compassion. So there was no answer. A lot of the things that one would like to understand or have explained in life with thought, with the mind, with logic, although they can be talked about or discussed or considered, can never really be answered, not in that way. You can't answer what is love with your thoughts. You can't really answer, what does it mean to be good? And I don't mean good in a a moralistic sense, but I mean, what is goodness in the heart? What does it mean to live according to the universal laws of karma, to understand them? It's not something one can figure out in the intellect. Something that really has to be felt and appreciated and touched somewhere in our heart. And so when we undertake a spiritual practice, when we come to sit and meditate here or at home or do a retreat or whatever, much more than giving a formula, a way that we're supposed to live, or giving some pat or fixed answer of the spiritual laws and spiritual truths. I see it as a place for us to stop and be silent and turn our attention inward and learn about the heart and learn to listen as we act in life and see where does our action come from when we relate to the people nearest to us, to the society at large. What is the state of mind? What is the state of heart? The men and women in whom Tao act without impediment, this is from Zhuang Tzu, harm no other beings by their actions, yet they do not think of themselves as kind or gentle. The men and women in whom Tao acts without impediment 
Do not bother with their own interests and do not despise others who do. They don't struggle to make money and they do not make a virtue of poverty. They go their way without relying on others and they do not pride themselves on walking alone. While they don't follow the crowd, they won't complain of those who do. Rank and reward make no appeal to them. Disgrace and shame do not deter them. They're not always looking for what is right and what is wrong, always deciding yes and no. The ancient said, therefore, that the true man or woman of Tao remains unknown. The perfect virtue produces nothing. No self is true self, and the greatest person is nobody. It's from Zhuang Tzu. It's not so much a question of imitation or following a particular example, as it is touching that place inside which becomes inspired or opened or filled with understanding or light of the heart. When we look at our actions in our life according to the principle of karma, we also see at times that things are mixed. And when you look, why am I going to do this? If you really let yourself look, well, I do it for some good reasons and I do it for some not so good reasons. I think that's true a lot of the time. Just as one sits and you think, well, I'll sit and I'll become calm or peaceful or the heart will open or the mind will become clear. Sometimes it happens, right? Sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes it's kind of mixed. You may have a period where it's like that and then filled again with worries or concerns or plans or fears. It's not something that you can figure out so well with the mind. In the actions that seem complicated and you can't tell, be quiet for a little while. Just take time to be a little silent. Listen and see if you can hear underneath that What do I really care about? What do I really want to do? The answer will come. In the sitting, it's the same. It may seem confused or turbulent or difficult to pay attention to. As soon as you notice that it's that way already, you're halfway out of it. The out of it doesn't mean it goes away. But the minute you notice it, you become conscious and you say, oh, that's just the mind again. Mind always does that, or very often. And then you listen and say, all right, what's underneath there? What's going on, really? Where am I? And you settle back for a moment, really to be here in this body, in your heart. I don't know what the thread is exactly of all these stories tonight, but I told them. Anyone want to make any suggestions for further things to discuss tonight or questions or comments of any kind. Let's take some time for that, please.
when we discussed the story about the 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 blind monk and the and the doctor in this small group, one of the things that happened was that some people started to experience regret. It was kind of interesting because they realized that um, they were paying more attention to what they did and less attention to why they did it. It's not so much that regret itself is useful. It's not a terribly useful state of mind. But it just kind of awakened people to say, well, maybe I should pay a little bit more attention to what the heart is saying, to what the what the source of, of words, the source of thoughts, the source of action is, than to actually what I do.